Alright, good morning. So Eric didn't say H before beauty today, so I really appreciate that, Eric. How's everyone doing? How's everyone doing? Awesome. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors here at church, and today I have the privilege and the blessing to bring the Word of God to you. Um, so if you have been with us for the last, at least the last three weeks, you know that we have been doing this series called A Love Unfiltered, in which we're looking into a very common, well-known passage in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that talks about love. Now, this is family, so we could be... Um, vulnerable with one another. How many of you guys uh, had in your wedding or have been ever in a wedding in which 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was preached? All right. Uh, how many of you guys was actually your wedding? Wow. All right. So I don't want you to feel bad, <laughs> but that passage is not about that, right? And I think that if you were with us at the beginning of the series, uh, Pastor Eric actually made it clear it doesn't mean that we cannot use that passage in a wedding, or it doesn't mean that we cannot use it when we talk about romantic love. But what we got to keep in mind is that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not about romantic love. It's not about romanticism. It's not about this sentimental thing. It's not about you saying something beautiful so you feel something in here. It's not about any of that. Can we use it that way? Of course. So if you used it, you don't have to feel guilty that way. But usually, we want to be faithful to the text as much as we can. We have to recognize that that's not what Paul had in mind when he was writing those things. Actually, if you read the text, if you read the context of the text, when Paul is writing this thing to the Corinthians, he's actually writing those things because this is a congregation, a church, that has all kinds of gifts, all kinds of abilities, all kinds of God-given talents, but they struggle with one basic foundational thing that every church needs to have. Love for one another. Actually, John says, if you guys were with us when we did this series, he said that the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way we love one another. That's why I say that it's the most foundational thing when it comes to our congregation. Amen? This is what the Lord has for us. Amen? This is what the Lord wants for us, that we learn how to love one another. And the reason why we chose the phrase love unfiltered is because it gives us this idea. What Paul is going to show us here is that we are called to radically love one another in very practical ways. Now, the text is talking about this group of people like you and I that actually have spiritual gifts. And there are so many things that we could share with one another. But that these people were using those spiritual gifts for personal gain or personal recognition or to be appreciated by other people. But they forgot that one of the reasons why God gave them those talents and abilities and spiritual gifts was actually for the common good. So that's important for us to know as, as TVC because... When we think about this room and we think about the people inside this room and the people that are connecting with us online that belongs to this church, the reason why you have a spiritual gift is not for you. It's for somebody else in the congregation. Did you guys get that? The spiritual gift that you have is not for you. It's for somebody else in the congregation. Paul is trying to correct that with these people. 
And the only way that we can learn how to exercise that law, those spiritual gifts well, is when we learn how to love. Now, you might be tempted to think that Paul here is thinking about, okay, okay what is the definition of love I want to give to these people? Oh, I know. Love is patient. Love is whatever. That's not how he approached this, you know? This is how he approached this text. This is how he approached this congregation. He paid attention to all the things that these people were struggling with. And he said, the opposite of that, that's love. Let me say it again. He paid attention to the congregation. Let's say that Paul was Eric, right? I mean, there's a huge difference. But uh, let's say that Paul was Eric. Eric is paying attention to the congregation, and he noticed all the beautiful things that you have, that you have, all the beautiful things that you have accomplished, all the gifts and talents that the Lord has given you, all the spiritual gifts that you have. But then he starts paying attention to everything that you do wrong, and then he says, the opposite of those things, that's love. And that's how Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through the first part of verse 8. Today, we're going to focus on one sentence. We already looked at verses 1 through 3. That was Eric preaching, and then we had Rob preach the, the first one in this list. Today, we're going to look at a different section. But just in case you haven't been here, and because I think it's important that we read the whole section all together all the time, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to ask you to please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, please go there. If you don't have your Bible, shame on you. Bring it next time. We're going to put it on the screen. Uh, we're, I mean, we're not going to hold that against you. Don't worry. If you're still here with me, can you please say, I'm here? That was much better than the first one. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. It says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and or, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Can you say I am nothing? If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Can you say I gain nothing? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does, it does not dishonor others, it is, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily anger, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Can you say always? Love never fails. Can you say that? Love never spells. Lord, we pray that you speak to us this morning. I am so grateful for this beautiful congregation in front of me, for those members of our church that are connected to us online. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that by the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word, we learn how to love, that we use our spiritual gifts the way we're supposed to, but the common good, but the edification of all the believers, because all the people are worthy of it. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, all right, you may take a seat. All right, this is what we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to focus in just one phrase on verse 4. It says that love does not envy. Love does not envy. Now, I'm going to be doing this all morning. Um, 
all morning, actually. How many of you guys here struggle with envy? Raise your hand. Okay, like four or five of you. I'm so glad that the rest of you guys are already holy because I feel much better about it. The reality is that we all do to certain degrees. So you're not alone, and I'm going to share some of my struggles here so you know that you're not alone. But envy is one of those things that is so hard to kill, very hard to kill. And there's various reasons for that. What I want to do is I want to ask the text today three questions. What does envy mean? Why is it that it's so disruptive? And how do we die to it? What is the meaning of it? Why is it that it's so disruptive when it came to community, when it comes to community? And how do we, how do we die to it? All right, so let's go with the first point. What does it mean? If you, ha- if you know a little bit of church history, or if you've been part of the church for a while, you probably already know that envy is a popular talk, uh, topic to talk about and actually to teach about. This is the reason why it's one of the seven deadly sins. Um, but I also think that part of the reason why it's so popular is precisely because whether we admit it or not, we always struggle with envy somehow. You might label it something else, right? Uh, you, might, um, you, may have, you may be afraid of admitting it, right? Uh, or you may think that it's not such a big issue. But I'm convinced that part of the reason why we are talking about envy is so important and the reason why Paul is bringing it here is because it's one of those things that we tend to keep silent there inside of our hearts. And we don't see it as a big issue. So Jerry Bridges, for example, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. One of the respectable sins we have is actually envy. Right? And um, I was listening to this pastor this week, and he was saying that in 30 years of ministry, not once he heard anybody confess to him that they struggle with envy. And I started thinking about that. In my 16 years of ministry, I, I can't recall anybody saying, hey, Hannibal, can you pray for me? I struggle with envy. Actually, in my 20-something years of Christian, I don't recall ever telling any of my pastors or friends or anything, hey, can you please for me? I struggle with envy, even though I know that it is there. Either we are blind to it or we put a different label, like I'm competitive, I'll get back to that one in a second. Or I just won't admit it. What I want to do then, by God's grace, and with a tender heart as much as I can, is that if I'm struggling with envy, I don't want to suffer alone. So I'm going to make you feel guilty the same way I feel guilty. (laughs) And then the gospel is going to save us all. Don't worry. I want to give you four things, four uh, descriptions of what envy is. I'm going to put them on the screen. And we're going to keep them on the screen all this time, so you don't have to move anything after that. Uh, but I'm going to break it down one by one. I think that the best way to describe envy, in light of what I see in the Bible, is that envy is the sickness of the soul. is the unquenchable desire for more. is the uh, restless comparison. And is the ingratitude of the heart. Sickness of the soul, the unquenchable desire of more. The, uh, the restless comparison and the, ingra- the ingratitude of the heart. Look at the first one here. The sickness of the soul. And I put there Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, and I'm just going to read it to you. Look at what it says. A heart at peace gives life to the body. Notice that there is a connection between the spiritual life and our body. But envy rots the bones. And this is po- Poetry. 
What, what the other book of Proverbs is saying is that there's something about envy that makes you feel spiritually sick. That there's something about envy that, that affects you spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. This is the reason why, if you want to see a psalm that talks about that, you got to read Psalm 73. And the psalm is there, it talks about envy, he feeling afflicted, him feeling punished by something. Him feeling deeply troubled, grieved, and bitter or resentful in your spirit. And part of the reason why you got to see this thing, this combination of these emotions and the spiritual thing and the physical thing, is because that's the way the Lord designed us to be. Whatever affects us physically affects us emotionally and affects us uh, physically. Physically or spiritually. We are this combination of physical beings with spiritual beings. And one affects the other and the other one affects the other. Regardless if you want it or not. Every time you struggle with something in your heart. Not only your head is affected and your emotions are affected. But your body is affected. This is one of the reasons why scholars throughout history. When they talk about envy, they describe it as being afraid Sorrowful, disturbing pain, disordered or corrupted desire, consuming, consuming desire. It is this thing that you just, not only you know, but you feel. How many of you guys ever struggle with envy that way? Three of you, four, good. I have felt that way so many different times. It's not just that, oh, I envy him. Is that I feel it. All right, so all right, so let me start with me. A few years ago, um, I was checking through social media. By the way, there's an issue with social media precisely because of that. You could read studies and that, tons of studies. Going through social media, and I find one of my friends. He's, I, I got to say, he's one of my closest friends. He's a fellow pastor in Washington. Um, we've done conferences together. I've been in his church. He has been in my church. Um, an amazing guy, right? Interesting thing that we both studied ministry kind of at the same time. He started a little bit earlier than me, maybe two, three years. But both of us have, have had uh, similar churches also all of our lives, share the same doctrine. With, I mean, crazy stuff, how close we are and how similar we are. But I'm looking through social media, and I see that he's invited to a conference. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'll pray for him, right? And then the following day, I check social media, and I see that he's invited to another conference. And I'm like, huh, that's cool. Let me pray for that. Following month, I check again, and he's invited to another conference. And I'm like, well, that's weird. I haven't gotten any invitations. And this is the crazy thing, though, that inside my heart, the way I was wrestling with that is by saying this. Check this out. Well, at least my church is bigger. Isn't that crazy? This is my friend. This is the crazy thing. I don't even like to travel. I really don't enjoy going to those conferences because I don't like to travel. I don't like to be away from my family. If I could take my family, that would be a different thing. But being by myself, being this famous speaker, I hate that stuff. But inside my heart, I feel it. And I envy one of my closest friends. 
So this is what this fourth century church father said. Envy is the sickness of the soul. A consuming, wasting, spiritual disease that devours people from inside out. It's not just a thing that you feel. It really affects everything about you. That's why you got to pay attention to your emotions, people. Because your emotions are the cry of the soul. Envy is like that. Number two, envy is the unquenchable desire for more. And I got a couple of examples here. Genesis chapter 3, obviously, whenever the sin comes into the world, when we have the famous the fall, historically speaking, and this is when the devil comes and tempts Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve, this is the, the interesting thing about this here, is that the only thing that the devil did was to trigger the unquenchable desire for more. That was the only thing he did. He triggered this desire for more, which is crazy when I think about it. Because here you have Adam and Eve in a perfect place, living in perfect harmony with God, in perfect harmony with one another, with everything that they needed, everything they wanted, they had it there. The only thing that they had to do was say something like, don't you think that you're missing something? Maybe God is keeping you from something. And the rest is history. One fruit. 20,000 trees. 20,000 trees. All to them. And one fruit. is the unquenchable desire, unquenchable desire for more. The second story there is Numbers chapter 11. God had already delivered his people from the 400-year slavery in Egypt. 400 years. Almost eight different generations living in slavery. God performs these amazing miracles. God cares for them, provides for them, gives them freedom. And when they're in the desert, God provides food. You know how crazy it is that you don't even have to work for your food? This is the only thing they did. Collected in the morning. And sometimes collected at night. That was it. But because we have this unquenchable desire for more, when they got tired of that, this is what they said. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. But I've always been intrigued by that because I I think that that's the reflection of the human heart. Sometimes we rather be in slavery but to fulfill our bellies. Isn't that crazy? It's always the unquenchable desire for more. I, I, I remember, man, the first time the Lord called me to teach the Bible. I studied in a Sunday school class in a little church in Merrill's Park, and I had a class of four students, four, four graders, I remember like if it was today. And something happened, then I moved out to high school, and then I had like six students. And then I changed churches, and then I had like 30 students. And then the ministry grew, and then I had like 60 students. And then the Lord called me to, uh, to lead the church, and then I had 500 people. 
And I don't know what's going to happen today, but that's besides the point. But this I noticed, though, that if I was not careful, and actually when I trace back to my heart, there was always this thing of, this is not enough. The house is enough. The accomplishments are not enough. What you receive is not enough. Your titles are not enough. Recognition is not enough. Admiration is not enough. Position is not enough. Responsibilities are not enough. Goods are not enough. Nothing is enough. It's this constant lack of contentment. And the crazy thing is that none of those things I mentioned are really worth dying for. And you see how we always struggle with, with envy. How many of you guys struggle with envy? Yeah, all right, this is getting, getting better. For those of you that are watching online, hands are going up now. Number three, envy is the restless comparison. I think that the best example in the Bible is the story of Saul and David. And here we have Saul chosen by God to be a king. He had given him everything, kingdom. He had it all. Money, power, title, wives, whatever. God chooses this tiny little man named David. And God, by grace alone, grants him grace and empowers him to become popular and to be used for the extension of God's kingdom. But when the people saw what David was accomplishing, not because of him, but because God, the God that was with him, people started singing this song. Saul has slain his thousands. You know that thousands is a lot, right? Saul has slain, has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And in his heart says the text that he was angry. Uh, angry and that displeased them greatly because they gave David the 10,000 and he only had thousands and then the text says that from that point on Saul kept a close eye on David that phrase in the original is he envied David from that point on Don't you think that sometimes we do that consciously or unconsciously? And we start to compare ourselves with other people. We see the things they have that we don't have. The accomplishments they have that we don't have. The families they have that we don't have. The bodies they have that we don't have. The lifestyle they have that we don't have. It's the sin of comparison. You know what's crazy about this? We can actually see it in this story. Is that that sin turns us into illogical people. So it starts by observing, and then it moves into your heart, into your wanting, and then it moves into hate, and eventually you just want to eliminate. Isn't that what Saul did? So other people become a threat to us. This is part of the reason why Jerry Bridges says, envy is us being afraid that someone is going to become equal or even superior to us. Can you see why envy can destroy community? 
Because everybody else then that the Lord has placed in your life becomes someone that probably is going to become superior to you or, God forbid, equal to you. Even more, if this is the case, you cannot rejoice with any, anybody else. See, the Bible calls us to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep that those that weep. But if you struggle with envy, not only you cannot rejoice with the people that rejoice, but that you rejoice when they suffer. See, we don't say things like, man, I hope he dies. But we say, man, hopefully he gets hurt. Well, I don't need that. I don't need, I don't need, I, I don't envy whatever that person is doing, but hopefully it doesn't go as well for him. Thomas Aquinas says, envy is sorrow for another's good. Aristotle says, envy is the disturbing pain excited by the prosperity of others. There's another professor from Bethlehem Seminary. He says, envy is a distorted and corrupted desire, a perverse comparison of oneself with others, an ungodly preoccupation with the advantages of others, and anger at the blessings of others. How deprived is that? Depraved is that? How depraved is that? Can you see how envy actually destroys community? This is why Paul is talking what he's talking about. Another scholar says, envy is the consuming desire to have, this, this quote is crazy. Envy is the consuming desire, consuming desire to have everybody else as, unse- as unsuccessful as you are. So it's almost like saying, I feel miserable. I want everyone to be as miserable as I am. Can you see how envy can destroy community? Can destroy community. And number four, envy is the ingratitude of the heart. Um, so last week, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but last week on Friday, uh, uh, the congregation was asking me questions for the voting things and stuff like that, and they wanted to get to know me. And somebody asked this question. If there's one uh, person in the Bible that you would compare yourself to, who would that person be? And I thought, man, what are the great ones? <laughs> I couldn't think of anyone. I just thought of Peter. Because I've always thought that Peter is a super passionate guy, and I think you could tell. But he didn't know his heart, and I think you could tell. And when I think of Peter, actually, I, I, I see a lot of him in me. So this guy, he swore that he would never walk away from Jesus, and he did. He swore that he was going to be faithful to Jesus, and he, and he wasn't. And this is the crazy thing. He really loved Jesus. He walked on water, for goodness sake. Like, would you do that? So when he says, I will die for you, he meant it. He was not being phony. He meant it. And yet, he did not know his heart. So he denies Jesus. The Lord, in his mercy, restores him, calls him back to ministry. That's John chapter 21. Gives him a calling. And then he says, you're going to die for me. By the way, Jesus always does the same call. 
That's your call. That's my call. But then Peter turns around and says, what about Eric? Is he going to die for Jesus? And Jesus turns around and says to Hannibal, what about Eric? That was Peter. Envy is when you stop ignoring everything that the Lord has already given us. Because we pay attention to the things that he has not given us for a reason. It's ingratitude. How many of you guys struggle with envy? Think of the Israelites for a second, just in case you're not convinced yet. Freed, delivered by the grace of God and the power of God. In the desert, provided with food and shelter. With a cloud of with a cloud during the day to protect them from the sun and with a cloud of fire at night to protect them from heat and to guide them. Walk through the Red Sea. And they were craving for the food they did not have instead of being thankful for the things that God had already given them. That's what envy means. The sickness of the soul, the unquenchable desire for more, the restless comparison, the ingratitude of the heart. The good news, though, is that God doesn't want to leave us there. This is the reason why Paul is talking about this so people actually see it, see the magnitude and the, and, and the struggle with these things, but so people don't stay there. This is part of the reason why we have the Holy Spirit in us, to help us die to ourselves and we live for the glory of God and for the well-being of others. But, but before we do that, though, not only you need to understand how dangerous and ugly this thing is, but you have to understand why is it that this is such a disruption to community, and especially when we come as a church, such a disruption when we think of what the church ought to be. And this leads me to my second point. Why is it that this is so disruptive? Now, verse 4, just read it again. It says, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy. Notice here that this is a verb in a sense. There's something about love that doesn't allow us to envy. Therefore, in order for us to understand how is it that envy is so disruptive, we have to understand what love is. And I want to offer to you my definition, at least from what I understand in the Bible, what love is. Simple definition. Love is always, 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 can you say always, seeking the well-being of another person. Love is never self-centered. It's always seeking for the well-being of another person. Love is always others-oriented. Love finds happiness in making other people happy. You know how I know that is true? Have you ever seen a parent doing something for their kids? Have you seen the parents' face or the faces? Listen, I use this example all the time, but um, if, you have, if, if you have a baby or if you have had a baby, um, the first six months of, maybe the first four months of a mother is, are incredible because the mother gives and gives and gives and gives, right? 
What does the baby do in exchange? Nothing. Number one, number two, and sleeping. That's it. Every now and then the baby goes, and the mom swears that the baby's smiling at her. His baby's just practicing a smile. But when the baby's happy, the mom is happy. Transfer that to the community of faith. Love is about seeking for the well-being of others. It's always others-oriented. It's you wanting other people to find happiness, even when it hurts. Now, I told you that part of the reason how I know that this is part of the reason how... um, why Paul was uh, dealing with this thing of envy is because the church in itself, this church at current, they struggle with envy a lot. How do I know that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to read this really quick to you. Look, look at the word jealous, jealousy right in the middle of the text. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave, you, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy, can you say jealousy? And quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Did you know that that word jealousy has the same root as the word envy that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? This is how we know that Paul was trying to correct something that they struggled with. If you notice, this is super interesting because this is the church being divided by two groups. So let's say that is both of us pastor here, pastor in this church. Half of you will say, Eric is my pastor, not Hannibal. And the other half says, pastor is my ha- uh, Hannibal is my pastor, not Eric. That's exactly what these people are doing here. How dumb is that? And notice Paul's tone. He's not saying, you guys are just struggling. It'll go away. Look at all the highlighted words that I put here. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. You know what that means? It's people that are not being guided by the Spirit. It's people that is resistant the Spirit of God. It is people that are, that's, are not being influenced by the Spirit. But you're living like if you were never converted. You are being slaves of your sinful desires. You are infants in Christ. You're not ready for the good stuff yet. You are acting like mere humans. You know what that means? Someone that even know, even though they have a saving relationship with Jesus, they are behaving like if they were never born again. Even though they're Christian. Even though they're Christian. They're allowing jealousy and envy to control their lives. There's something about this passage that I don't want you to miss. You usually envy, I usually envy, not the people that have different things like the ones I have. But I usually envy, and we usually envy, the people that are like us and like the things that we like. Like, I don't envy the president. I don't envy people in the army. I don't envy, that's not in, I don't care about that. My envy is always toward people 
that have the same things I have, but better, quote unquote. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Matt Chandler, preacher Matt Chandler, Texas. A few years ago, a couple of, two, three years ago, one of his friends wrote a letter to him, made it public. Matt Chandler and his friend, they both, uh, they, they grew up in the same university, and uh, when Matt Chandler became popular, um, his friend was the kind of the speaker in that university, the well-known speaker. Um, but Matt Chandler came in, and once again, always by God's grace and because God wanted to, he elevated Matt Chandler super fast. So now he became the popular speaker. He was the one invited to the conferences. He was the one that people were following him. The, the ministry went like for 200 people to 2,000 people, all young adults. So he became super popular right at the, from the beginning of ministry. Uh, and his friend kind of, uh, so Matt Chandler increased and this other guy decreased. To the point that he was not comfortable and he walked away from that relationship. And even though they were friends, but he couldn't be with Matt Chandler. So years later, uh, Matt Chandler uh, got can, uh, ten, um, a brain tumor. And his friend, oh, so hold on, <laughs> that's crazy. So now Chandler has this brain tumor and now everyone is praying for Matt Chandler. You know, he was in a conference. Thousands of people pray for him. Pastors that we respect and honor, they all pray for him. Um, and this guy writes this letter saying that not only he envied Matt Chandler's success, Matt Chandler's ministry, but he started to envy his brain tumor. Because he was getting all the attention he wanted. So don't assume that you're not struggling with this because you're not envying you're not envying somebody else that is different to you. You've got to pay attention to the people that is close to you. And that for some reason, the Lord has given them something different. See, it is only when we learn to love that we can fight envy. It is only when we put others first that we can fight envy. It is only when we learn how to put others first and we are others-oriented, and we want all the people to be happy, that, that envy starts to lose power in our hearts. So look at how it looks when you have envy next to love. It says, if envy is the sickness of the soul, then love is the healing of the soul. Which in our culture and time, that doesn't make sense, right? Because people tell you that you're supposed to think about yourself only. But what the Bible tells you is that when you think about others, your soul is healed. If, if envy is the unquenchable desire for more, then love is the gift of contentment. You will never find contentment unless you learn how to love. If envy is the restless comparison, then love is the appreciation of community. You have the gifts I need. I have the gifts you need. This is what the beauty of community. If envy is the ingratitude of the heart, love gives you a life of thankfulness. All because you learn how to love. Third question to answer is, so how do we die to envy? Well, let me make a couple of statements right from the beginning. Number one, you will never, ever, ever be completely free of envy. As long as we continue to live in this side of creation, in this side of redemption, you will never be completely free. That's always going to be there. 
You're always going to struggle with this. But the, the trick here is learning how to kill it every time it shows up. You guys remember, um, I don't know if that story is still open, but uh, Chuck E. Cheese, was it? Chuck E. Cheese's or something like that? There was, I took my daughters over there all the time. I hated that place, but I love my daughters, so I took them over there. Um, and they had this, one of the, the games had these things popping up, like little heads popping up. And you had a, ha- uh, a hammer, and you're supposed to hit it in the head, and the thing will go down, and you hit another one, then this one will pop up. That's how envy is. It pops up, you hit it, it pops up, you hit it, it pops up. That's the life of a Christian. So if you think that you're, never gonna, that you're ever going to stop struggling with this, you're fooling yourself. You're never going to get there. You need to kill this thing over and over and over again, just like any other sin. Maybe the Lord grants you, maybe the Lord grants you complete freedom from that sin. That hasn't been my experience. He has granted me freedom from other sins, not this one. So there are three things that you need to do. Our struggle is because we love ourselves too much. Therefore, you need to love God first and then others. I'll tell you how in a second. Two, you need to learn to use your thoughts to fight this thing. And number three, you need to become extremely practical and do certain things. Love, think, and do. And for that, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is going to be super fast. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and a slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the way I'm going to handle this text is from the bottom up. Remember, the three things that I want to give you, these are extremely practical things. You need to love, you need to think, and you need to do. Love, think, and do. Everything flows from the things that you love. The reason why we struggle with envy is because we love ourselves way too much. You remember that, the commandment that says, love your neighbor as yourself? It doesn't say, love your neighbor more than what you love yourself. At least loving the way you love yourself. That's what God says. And we can't even do that. We have to learn how to love ourselves the way we're supposed to. But in order for us to love ourselves the way we're supposed to, we need to learn how to love the Lord more. This is why at the end in verse 3 says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In the context of the text, he's not talking about Jesus, just Jesus as the Son of God. In the context of the text, he's saying that we, we are only transformed when we have tasted that Jesus is good because he lived, died, and resurrected on our behalf. Actually, verse 4, Hughes talks about Jesus as the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. Obviously, this is talking about the cross. The only way we learn how to love ourselves properly is by loving God first, is by loving Jesus first. The only way that you're going to deal with your affections in your heart is when Jesus becomes precious to you the same way he was precious to the Father. It is when you see Jesus and him crucified. That's how we know that the Lord is good. 
Because it is at the cross when you can see that we, have, that we have much more than what we deserve. It is only when you see at the cross that you have been loved much more than you deserve. You have been accepted. You have, been, you have an inheritance. You have been forgiven. You have been justified, separated by God, um, and sanctified, separated by God. You have all the spiritual blessings. You know what all the spiritual blessings means? All the spiritual blessings, everything that really matters, you already have in Jesus Christ. So why allow this unquenchable desire for more control your heart when you have everything that you truly need? Like, really, do you need something else? All these spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, no one can take from you. No life, no death, no sickness, no healing. None of those blessings can be compared to the blessings, what it means to have all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. Why allow the restless, uh, restless comparison to control your heart? Compared to what? Sons of God. Chosen. Royal priesthood. Compared to what? Why allow the ingratitude of your heart to control your heart? Listen, even if you don't pay attention to every other blessing you have, the greatest blessing is to know that God looked at you in the midst of your misery. He called you to him. He sent the spirit to convict you. He gave you the gift of repentance. He allowed you to see and he brought you to him. Even if you don't have nothing else. Just gratitude for that will fight your envy. That's how your affections are transformed. Now, not only you need to love that, but you need to think. See, verse 2 says, crave pure spiritual milk. That's another phrase to use the word of God. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Notice that it says that we are already saved if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, but that we grow in our salvation. And the way we grow in our salvation is by craving the word of God. It's by craving the word of God because it's the story of redemption. It's craving the word of God because it is the word of God. It is the story of the gospel. It, the entire Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. The more we crave that, which interesting enough is the word desire. The more you desire Jesus, the more you desire the word, the more you desire what the word says, the more you desire God and who he is and what he has done for you, the more you desire what he has for you, the more you desire what he's got in the future for you, the more you desire that, the less you're going to desire something else. So right now I'm trying to lose some pounds, COVID pounds. And I noticed that Jim doesn't do it for me because I find it super boring. I noticed that diet, diet doesn't do it for me because I don't have that discipline. I've noticed that one of the things that controls my appetite is by desiring to be healthy for the sake of my family. So in my family, there's a history of people that died of heart attacks, like a ton of them. 
And I'm thinking, maybe I should take care of myself. But if I do it for me only, that's not strong enough. But if I do it for my family, I skip the burger once a week. <laughs> Let's not exaggerate. You can only replace a desire by a greater desire. It's only when I desire the beautiful good news of the gospel and what Jesus did for me that I actually find freedom. Love, think, and lastly do. And with this I finish. In my own personal journey with the Lord, I realized that I need three things to fight all of the struggles in my heart in a specific envy. Number one, I always need to, to do some sort of a spiritual assessment. I got to check my emotions and I got to check my heart. I got to check for the symptoms of envy. Why do I compare myself? Am I criticizing? Am I complaining? Do I have a, do I have a heart of ingratitude? If I don't do that, then my envy will take control of my heart. Two, you do the opposite of what your emotions and your heart wants to do. So, for example, I call this the opposite spirit. If my tendency, I'm going to use my example as a friend, if, if my tendency here is to feel, why is he inviting and not me? The opposite spirit, which I think is what the spirit does, leads me to pray for him and to bless him. If I find myself with a heart of ingratitude, then I make sure that I take the time to be grateful about everything in my life. I, I, I do this at least once a month in my devotional time. I say, Lord, well, I'm thankful for this and 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 this. And when I see the magnitude of God's grace, my heart finds rest. And number three, you got to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself, people. You got to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself. If you don't remind yourself of who you are already in Jesus Christ, you will crave something else. If you don't learn how to fight for your heart, you will crave something else. If you don't preach the gospel to yourself, envy will control your life and it will be the sickness of your soul. But everything that we need, we already have in Jesus. And you're not alone. This is why we are a church. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Grateful, Lord, for your sweet confrontation and your aggressive grace. Because it is only when we are confronted with the reality of our hearts that the gospel becomes even more sweet. Please give us the freedom that we need to fight against our own tendencies to fight against our own heart. Teach us how to love other people and put him first. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, can you please stand for the, uh, we respond to the Lord in adoration?